Looks like a lot of people listened to our Mike DeWine special episode that we recorded last week. It's good. If you missed it, you might go and try it. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Laura Johnston and Jay Cahoon. Chris Bornowski is taking one extra day away from the podcast to get caught up. Happy Monday, last day of summer. Oh, boo-hoo. But I mean, with the gorgeous fall weather, I am not going to complain about 60s and sunny, but we could just have that forever. That'll be great. I don't think Rich Exter is going to be writing a story (laughs) saying this was the warmest September on record because it hasn't been. All right, let's get started. Is Rob Portman pulling a Lindsey Graham and going full hypocrite on whether a Supreme Court nominee should be approved this late in a president's term? Jane Cahoon, <laughs> this is almost <laughs> predictable. You know, in 2016, when the, the Republicans held up the uh, appointment, the, Obama's appointment, you know, people thought, what happens in four years? And now we're seeing it. I was a little bit surprised at Rob Portman. He's got two years left on his term, but this is the kind of thing that can really come back to haunt you. Right. Well, and as you know, in, in 2016, you know, it wasn't just the argument that they're using about, you know, the the president and the Senate are of the same party. But, you know, in 2016, it was like months and months before the election. And now we have, you know, people already voting in this election. And last time he said, you know, oh, voters should have a chance to, to weigh in, uh, you know, before a Supreme Court vote takes place. And, and it should really take place in a less partisan atmosphere. But now, I mean, I don't know how you could argue with a straight face that this is a less partisan atmosphere now. But his thing is, he he said he's going to do his duty as a senator and and vet and vote for a nominee that which which I found kind of interesting how he put it in terms of, you know, fulfilling his role as a senator, like as if he has no choice about this. I mean, he clearly does have a choice because the last time he refused to fulfill that role. So. It's it's yeah, there is there's no winning this. It's 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 hypocrisy. I mean, it's the definition of hypocrisy. What I'm surprised at is that this is kind of dumb. I mean, there's a good chance this will not be successful. There's not the Senate is so close and you already have two people saying I'm not doing it. It, it, It's it could be very hard to make this work. And then you suffer all the damage of being hypocrite, right? You get, I mean, everybody gets to say your word means nothing. Your character means nothing. And this is a major issue. Wouldn't the smart move for the Republicans be to say, you know what, we're going to stand on principle. We're going to stand on precedent. We'll pick the candidate in the next presidential term. So go and vote for us to make sure we get to do that. You know, if you feel strongly about who this should be, go vote Republican. That, that actually might help them get votes. This I can't see any way this helps them get votes. This just, I, sometimes you wonder if you're in power that you are so blind to the reality of what's out there that you just make bad decisions. Jim Jordan was out there too. Yeah, we need to move. We need to move. Yeah, it's like, that's no surprise yeah. at all. He's seen. except, except it, it's pragmatically. There's a good chance it won't work, that you will not get the votes you need. And then everybody who stood by it gets branded as, as a hypocrite. And if the Democrats do take the Senate next in the election, you know, look out because they, there will just be say, consequences for sure. Yeah, yeah. they'll say yeah. you guys never stood by your word. You completely, you know, went backwards on 2016. So the hell with it. We're going to do whatever we want. It's there's so much risk. I, I mean, really. 
this doesn't damage the Democrats at all. All the the, the death of uh, the Supreme Court justice this close to the election is a huge danger for Republicans, and they just don't seem to see it. It's it throws and Portman, of course, you know, comes right out and says, "Well, I'm going to do my duty." It's like, well, then where were you four years ago, man? Yeah. Well, he's so running for re-election four that. years ago. I mean, this is Laura Johnston. I just kept thinking he's fulfilling his duty as a Republican, right? Not, <laughs> right. not as a senator. <laughs> Good point, Laura. Uh, you know, I think, number one, he's counting on people to have short memories, which, I mean, we've seen all these things come and go during the Trump administration, and people people do have short memories. So maybe maybe he's counting on that. But I do think this will energize, actually, both sides in the election. I don't think we can say it's going to energize one side more than the other. Yeah, but I think the damage is done to the Republicans because, look, (laughs) I can't believe this is no longer true. I mean, it used to be true that integrity and character were attributes people wanted in their candidates. So standing by your word seems kind of clear. I mean, Lindsey Graham four years ago said, (laughs) hold me accountable. Yeah, come back at me. Yeah, Right. And it's like, okay, it's four years later. Are you just, you know, are you that much of a weasel? So I don't know. I I mean, it's interesting. Rob Portman, uh, you know, I I wonder if he runs in two years. He been he has been so damaged by his his weakness in standing up to things that Trump has done that are bad for America. That I wonder if he realizes that that he's going to have a very hard reelection run. And this is just his latest kind of lame position to take. Instead of saying, "Look, four years ago." I, I made my my position very clear, and I'm I'm a man of honor. I'm standing by my position. Of course, I am because that's what you do. He immediately waffles and goes the other way. It's just like wow, um, that's the kind of politician Ohio is electing today. All right, it's this week in the CLE. How bad was the police intelligence on the crowd size for the May 30th George Floyd protest in Cleveland, which developed into a riot by day's end with police woefully understaffed? Laura Johnston, it's taking forever to get to the bottom of all of the different things we need to know about this riot. Friday late, of course, Cuyahoga County, they always release their important documents at the end of the day. Friday, they think that nobody will pay attention and it's such a sleazy approach to public policy. They did it again Friday. They released a bunch of use of force reports by sheriff's deputies that had some things in there that were quite revealing. Yeah. So their estimate was really, really far off. Um, They believed that only a few hundred demonstrators were going to come to this protest of law enforcement brutality, even though large protests had spread throughout the U.S. cities in response to the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis. I believe there was even that day, a couple of days earlier, protests in Columbus that had gotten violent. And this was the Cleveland Police Department Intelligent Unit. They thought that about 200 people were going to come. And the way in their report that it's framed uses the same terminology that people use on Facebook to say that they're going or are interested. So did someone just go to Facebook on the event page and say, oh, that's my intelligence? I think so. I think that's what they did. (laughs) I mean, that seems incomprehensible at this point. But, I, you know, I'm not going to put anything past them. So they didn't call in extra deputies until about 1.30 in the afternoon. Remember, this demonstration was officially, according to Facebook, supposed to start at 2, which meant lots of people were already at the free stamp at that time. And by 3 p.m., more than 1,000 demonstrators had gathered and were marching toward the Justice Center. So they were just 
really far behind and really off. We should point out that these reports are mostly by deputies that were called in as SWAT officers after the mayhem began. So there's not a lot in these reports that gives insight into whether law enforcement's response sparked the violence or whether the crowd became violent first. It's something that reporter Corey Schaefer has addressed quite a bit. But it did. When you read these, it paints a very chilling picture of the bedlam. I mean, these guys, they didn't have enough people. And the rioters are breaking windows, trying to get into the building. At one point, this is the first time I saw this, a fire was set in the public defender's office. So they keep going to different places. There are windows to try and and keep people out. And and you can tell in the way these are written, these guys were worried. A, A few of them described the fear. But the most chilling thing in there is one deputy describing a fellow deputy shooting a man in the head with a beanbag and the guy going down and they look at each other and go, man, did you see that? And the deputy that wrote the report actually takes the beanbag rifle from the other guy for a while so he can get some rest. But then that other guy, man, he was like super renegade loading his pockets with beanbags, Mr. Roger Ramjet. I would like to point out that the guy who fired the beanbag does not have a report in these 12 reports. And all of these 12 reports from Sheriff's Department had uh, department supervisors who reviewed the incidents and found that all of the deputies acted reasonably and were justified in using the force. Well, when you read what's going on, you, you kind of, I mean, they, they, you know, there were people that were trying to get into the justice center where the jail is. I mean, these guys have to repel that. And you can tell they felt overwhelmed. They felt like they could, they could possibly lose the place. It is striking that that report is missing. If all of the rest of these are public record, why isn't that guy's use of force public record? There is a criminal investigation. It's, it, there's no indication that, the description of the guy getting hit in the head is the guy we know of because there's a video who was hit in the head and lost his eye Uh Um, that there is a criminal investigation of that case, but the County, like the County plays games with public records. And so clearly that deputy has written a use of force report and clearly we're not seeing it. Uh, It's another case where the County violates the records law. The one other thing I wanted to point out here is that one report detailed the dispersal order. We've talked a lot about the dispersal order because none of the Cleveland.com reporters who were there heard it. A lot of the legal observers never heard it. So they they said in this report that the deputy could not hear the dispersal order because the crowd was so loud. Yeah, and he was standing in fairly close proximity and he could hear it at the very beginning, but the crowd noise got so loud he couldn't hear it, which means nobody could hear it, which means they didn't really effectively issue a dispersal order. Part of it, though, is because they were outnumbered by by such a huge proportion. And the idea that they thought 200 people were coming downtown based on some stupid Facebook thing is preposterous. You're right. In cities across America, thousands of people were massing. And you would think that if you're law enforcement, that's what you would prepare for. Nobody ever criticizes you for over-preparing only for underpreparing and Cleveland police blew this one. I mean, that, and, and it was nice to finally get that number. We've been asking for it from the city. We've been asking for it over and over again. We're months down the line. We're finally getting these answers. And uh, it does make you think that this could have been avoided. Like had they been properly prepared? If they had enough people, they probably could have kept this in containment, but, but they, they clearly, they were, they were outnumbered. It's this week in the CLE. Why does Cleveland State University want to wipe out as many as half of its colleges? 
Jane Cahoon, this was kind of a shocker that dropped on Friday. Uh, Steve Litt learned of it because he's a, an alum and he got a notice about it. Um, and we jumped on it. This is a pretty dramatic change that could be in store for Cleveland's university. Right. They could come down to like five or six colleges from the current 11, according to this September 14th report, which which dubs it a CSU 2.0 plan. And uh, so they they did come up with like five different consolidation plans, this task force that was looking at this. And it it doesn't exactly detail, you know, where the savings would come from. But I guess the target for this plan is a range from four million to five million dollars. Um, but they and they didn't make a specific recommendation on which option leaders should pick. They they said they want to solicit more campus feedback and do a more thorough review. So I'd say this is still like in the early stages, but you're right. It was, it was an eye opener. Well, there's a couple of things that, that are surprising. One, the savings comes pretty much from dismantling the Dean's offices, which I guess, you know, that, that seems like kind of a paltry savings, but two, you know, colleges make a lot of money by reaching out to alumni. And if you're an alumnus and your school is wiped out, are you going to be in quite the mood to be giving? I mean, I know the college presidents have to make the rounds and I mean, half of that job is begging people to give you cash. Well, if you wipe out the school that I went to, I, I think I would be much less likely to want to donate, right? Yeah, I guess they could try to make the sell that, oh, your school still exists. It's just part of another school now or something. But, you know, they and they've lost so much because of the pandemic. I guess in May they said they lost like eight million dollars and could lose another thirty seven million and and uh you know, they were looking at pay cuts and furloughs, et cetera. So, you know, that's I wonder though, Jane, how much of this is really we've been we've been talking for years that there's a shakeout coming in the university system. The the population is shrinking for the universities and we've had many people predict there'd be a calling that not all of them would survive. And I wonder if University of Akron, CSU, others will use the pandemic as the as the justification for cutting back when it's when it's much more really about trying to survive in the current academic climate. Yeah, they, they've already announced that they're exploring that unified law school, CSU is, with, with the University of Akron, uh, where, where students could take class on either campus. So that's another aspect of this. The world is being forever changed by this virus, and it's, it's every day you feel like you're, you're hitting another. It's this week in the CLE. How important is the annual auto show at the just-shuttered IX Center to the bottom line of auto dealers? Or Johnston, we keep talking about industries that have been slammed by the coronavirus. This is another one, the big show industry. We were shocked last week when the IX Center abruptly closed down. Susan Glaser went out and looked at what this could mean to some of the big shows that use these things to generate revenue. The auto show is is probably the biggest. What does this mean for the auto dealers? Yeah, this is huge. So I had no idea. I've never been to the auto show, but it turns out that March is the biggest car buying month in Cleveland because of the show. The show draws nearly 350,000 people over 10 days, and then they go back to the dealers and buy the cars that they tried out 
at the show. So it means a lot. And that is, it's not just cars. Like boat dealers do up to 40% of their annual sales at the boat show in January. That draws about 50,000 people over five days. But these are big numbers and they matter to the industry. So the show ind- organizers were all shocked that the, that the IX Center was closing. And they're still hopeful that the mayor is going to find some way to keep the IX Center open and that they're going to get an okay from the governor to have their shows because uh, think about it. The winter months are very important for the trade show industry because you can't do anything outside. So this is going to get hairy down here. The problem for the IX Center, it sounds like the business was thinning down. I mean, we know the boat show. We know the auto show. We know the home and garden show. But a lot of their smaller bread and butter events, I guess, had been reduced. And so they were having a hard time making it. I wonder whether a facility that large can stay in business just working with a handful of big shows a year. And I get the auto thing, right? If you're if you're interested in buying a new car and you don't know what you want, your choice is to go to dealer after dealer and get the high pressure nonsense from the salespeople or go to the auto show, get in, check out a lot of different cars in a much lower pressure situation and decide what you want so that you can go out and buy it. I don't see how... You can do that in a smaller facility like the downtown convention center because you just can't have nearly as many cars, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that we've talked about this a little bit that the the business uh, boosters in Cleveland say, oh, no, we can handle this. But it's just physically not as big. I mean, there is a convention center in Cleveland. Um, they have an exhibit space with those tall ceilings, but it's more for conferences like content marketing world. It's not meant to put like a whole bunch of cars and boats in. So and I, it'll be interesting to see whether what they do. And, and I mean, what's the alternative? I mean, you know, I, could you do an auto show in like an arena? <laughs> I just don't <laughs> Probably know. Probably not very well. It just it's uh, because I mean, that will cut into the sales because it takes away the whole display. All right. You're listening to this week in the CLE. What has happened to the bars and restaurants that were cited by liquor agents for violating coronavirus restrictions like mask wearing and distancing? Jen Cahoon, we've been writing about all these citations. We have stories every week, every weekend. They go out, they cite a few more. And we finally thought, you know, what's happening? What's the result of being cited? And so we went out and figured that out. What is the result of being cited? Well, so far, only one place has lost its license, and that is the Highland Tavern in Akron because they had some repeated violations. But many others have been fined for a number of days or suspended. Uh, I'm sorry, suspended for another a number of days or fined, you know, a couple hundred, couple thousand bucks. So Laura Hancock took a look at the work of these 85 agents who work for the Ohio Investigative Unit. They're the ones who go into the bars and you know, most times we have to say they go in and they don't find any violations because we're told most of the bars are abiding by the rules. But, you know, they've gotten numerous complaints that, that they investigate. And then after they issue the citations, um, the Ohio Liquor Control Commission is the one that hears all these things. So, like, um, since March 15th, you know, the beginning, so, sort of beginning of the pandemic, agents have written 164 citations. And since August, the Liquor Control Commission has held like 18 hearings and they're going to hold more, uh, you know, this week and again in October. So they, they've got, they're, they're working their way through these, through these cases. But, um, 
you know, most, most times it's things like, yeah, they're not wearing masks. They're serving after the 10 PM last call rule. Uh, they're not distancing. Uh, but sometimes they just go in there and they maybe give them a warning. Like they'll find something relatively minor, like they're trying, but they, but they overlooked something. And, and so they also try to try to educate people. But Laura has a complete list of what happened to every citation that the Con- Liquor Control Commission has heard so far. You know, it's it's more of an acute problem today than it was when we set out to do the story. The CDC came out over the weekend and said the virus is an aerosol. Up until now, it's been believed that it's these big droplets that when they come out of your mouth, they fall to the ground within six feet of you fairly quickly. Now the CDC is saying, nope, that's not what's happening. It's hanging in the air for quite a long time, which means that in any kind of setting where you're with strangers and not wearing a mask, you're in danger. And bars and restaurants where you're eating and drinking, you can't wear a mask. So if you're not enforcing any kind of distance, and actually the CDC said six feet doesn't really matter when it's an aerosol, then then these rules really do matter. It, it, uh, as the weather gets colder and people are unable to eat and drink outside, I wonder what happens because that that's a setting that I just don't see how you can make safe. They're saying the same thing about gyms, you know, with all the heavy breathing and churches with choir practices and things like that. But in a restaurant and a bar, you can't wear the mask. So, so I, I hope the liquor control agents continue to do the enforcement. <laughs> It'd be nice to save some people from this thing. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. When does the Museum of Contemporary Art Cleveland finally reopen after closing because of the pandemic? And what have the challenges been? Laura Johnston, I thought almost everything like this had already reopened in some shape or fashion. But it turns out this museum has not reopened yet. What's going on there? Yeah, everything pretty much has. Um, And this has been closed a lot longer, and it's not just because of the coronavirus. So they're scheduled to reopen October 1st, but they're dealing with the fallout over this controversial decision last winter to cancel an exhibition of drawings by a New York artist named Sean Leonardo, which depicted police killings of Black men and youth. And then there was this huge fallout in uh, June when Leonardo accused Mocha publicly of censoring him. So Jill Snyder, who had left the museum for 23 years, resigned shortly thereafter. They hired an Atlanta-based consulting firm to help the museum decide whether its practices were reinforcing structural racism, how to transform their hierarchical that's a hard word to say, (laughs) hierarchical Mm -hmm. office culture that may have contributed to this debacle. So um, Steve Litt had a really in-depth story on Sunday where he talked to the executive director and CEO, Megan Likens-Reich, who said the museum is learning from these, I guess, mess-ups and their watershed moment is what she referred to it as. They they think they're going to lose a lot of money uh, this year, 25% of the revenues next year. That's $900,000. They laid off about 10 people out of their 36 employees. So they are just going through a huge amount of struggle right now. Well, we we talked last week about how arts institutions all through the, the area have lost employees and salaries and have been hard hit. But this one is particularly hard hit because the crisis came during an already difficult time. It's good stuff by Steve Litt. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How is Cleveland Mayor Frank Jackson defending his massive health department shakeup in the middle of a pandemic? 
Jen Cahoon, we were a bit surprised when Frank Jackson dropped that news last week that he was completely restructuring the health department, which, you know, for, for most of the, the past hundred years, it's had it's worked on lead paint and things, generally not with a lot of competence. But now it's in the crosshairs. It's the biggest reason for health departments to exist is a pandemic. And in the middle of one, he decides to change it all around. He had a press conference to talk about it. What did he say? Well, he said this shakeup was needed to correct personnel problems as well as make the de- department more responsive. It it seems to be focused on realigning their priorities to address more quality of life issues in, in Cleveland neighborhoods and do things like approach violence and, and crime as a health issue. So that includes, you know, addressing racism as a public health issue and dealing with the impact of toxic stress in youth as a result of violence and trauma and uh, delivering health services through these newly configured recreation center. So, so they've reassigned the health director and he's putting the department under the supervision of the Office of Prevention, Intervention and Opportunities for Youth and Young Adults. And that, you know, so that maybe will mesh more with the, with the goals here. What I found interesting, one of the things I found interesting about the findings of their investigation of the department, one of the complaints was that there was discrimination of of certain people. And the result finding was, no, 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 we don't discriminate against any one group. We mistreat everybody. It's just poorly managed and and we really don't have good leadership there. And it's like, okay, that's a novel defense for discrimination. We 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 don't treat one group badly. We treat everybody badly. That's sad. Uh, and there was some mismanagement. Like they they lost a million and a half dollars in state funding for HIV AIDS prevention because they didn't meet the state requirements. They just they messed that up apparently. The the, the Cleveland Health Department has been messed up for as long as I've been in Cleveland. I mean, it seems like, you know, every three, four years they lose a grant, they mismanage something. It it gets back to our common theme about should health departments be a local entity as they are now? Because it's just not working. I mean, Cleveland's is a mess. The county is secret and doesn't respond to the people. You get varying degrees of professionalism from county health boards across the state, which is making contact tracing more difficult. You know, it's like, okay, I get it. This was created as a result of the 1918 pandemic, but there's got to be a better way than what we have We have here. I was surprised UH has a uh, a forum for the election today, and the first involves health, and they have the the Cuyahoga health director, Terry Allen, well, that, that immediately costs the credibility of that panel because that, that board's just not doing its job. I, you know, you put him on the panel, it's like, okay, that's really not a panel worth listening to. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What happened to all those maskless people who were standing shoulder to shoulder for a Christian music concert at Edgewater Park last week? Laura, this was a weird one. I mean, a, a big crowd of people living dangerously at the park. I get it. It's outside, but they were really close. And now that the CDC has said the virus is an aerosol, I'm betting some of them got it. What was this about and what are the consequences? Well, we don't know what's going to happen to each of these 500, more than 500 people, but, and will any of them get sick? But 
the whole concert did get cited by the Metro Parks police because organizers didn't have a permit. Police ended up also blocking car access to the park. Now, you've got to remember that Metro Parks canceled all of the Edgewater and Euclid Beach live concerts this summer. They actually canceled uh, swim races, bike races, anything that was an event in the parks was was canceled. So this Christian leader uh, didn't have a permit. His name is Sean Foigt, and he's been having concerts all over the country this year under the motto, let us worship. And it's it's kind of bizarre. And it's like a social media phenomenon, I guess. They're, they're trying to target cities where Black Lives Matter protests have been held. And this guy told Fox News that he was calling on Christians to rise up in defiance against a, quote, double standard of coronavirus restrictions. And his viewpoint is that people don't have to wear masks at a p- political protest, so they shouldn't have to wear masks at a worship service. He would say it's hypocrisy. We're seeing across America thousands of people gather and protest in the streets. Our cities are burning, yet we're not allowed to gather and worship and sing. I got to point out here that Ohio has never limited or banned religious services. That's been Mike DeWine made that point over and over again. He's just saying recommendations. This is not a smart move to gather and sing and not wear masks. Yeah, that that's the weird thing about this is that in Ohio you can gather, but but they didn't get a permit. It must have been a shock at the Metro Parks office when they got the call saying, "Hey, we have hundreds of people here for a concert, and you know nothing about it." I mean, right. that, that that's got to rattle and you, and especially during a pandemic. The police told them, "If you put your instruments away, we will not cite you because we can't stop you from being in a public park, and we can't stop you from having a religious gathering or a political protest or whatever you want to call it." But they wanted their instruments, so they got cited. The people who attended did not get cited. No, it was the just the organizer. organizer. Right. And and the Metro Parks police report said more like five to six hundred people. But um this guy Sean Foigt on social media said they had more than three thousand people and there was baptisms and everything. So he went the next weekend to Florida. So we'll see where he goes next. Okay, you're listening to this week in the CLE. All right, we're not going to get to the Halloween question today. We'll get to it tomorrow. We do have the state's order. Lots of people care about that, but we're out of time. So thank you, Jane. Thank you, Laura. Thanks to everybody for listening to This Week in the CLE. Do check out the special episode with Mike DeWine. It's pretty insightful into what he's been thinking all the time, and we, again, thank him for participating in that. This Week in the CLE, we'll be back tomorrow. 